Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Kemi Sharia. And I'm Monica Ainley. And you're listening to Fashion No Filter. Where we sit down with some of the lead creatives, strategic thinkers and emerging talent around us to interpret the ins and outs of the fashion industry today. Hello and welcome back to Fashion No Filter for our last but not least final lockdown special. Monica and I are still in different countries but we are still finding ways to record remotely and we hope that you enjoy this episode. As with all of our other lockdown episodes, we haven't accepted sponsorship, but we would love for you to donate if you enjoy these shows to either the International World Health Organization or the French charity Protégeons Soignants. The link to both of those will be in the show notes. Thank you so much for your donations. Cami's given us a gift and I don't know what it is, but Joel's already received it. And Joel, it just sounds so, like, pleased. <laughs> it's yummy. It is so yummy. What is it? We, we've we talked about it a lot, Monica, and it's, like, quite a precious resource at the moment. Oh! It's something that you struggle to find in France, mm. so I decided to, to send you my favourite from home. Marmite? No, no, better than that. Peanut butter? Yes. No. No. <laughs> no. Oh my god, I'm so happy. It must be so rare in France that they've someone at customs has stolen it. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, this is a scandal. Someone in Calais is just gorging themselves on the Having the, the time best of their life. Butter. What brand is it? Oh, I don't remember the name. It's a really good one. It's one I... Because I, I get... know about the brands. I know about the... I know. Unfortunately, I don't know all peanut butter brands name off by heart. I get it at um, Whole Foods and I really like it. Oh, wow. And I checked when you were talking about it, whether it was as you seem to be looking without sugar, without all those things. And it, it was. It complied to all your to all your ingredient rules. So I thought I would send you a pot of mine. And then I thought that if since Joel seemed like he loved it too, I would uh, I would include one for him as well. <laughs> so thoughtful. And so Joel, thoughtful. is this peanut butter living up to your expectations? I mean, it's lived up and exceeded my expectations and is now an empty jar in the recycling. <laughs> Very happy to hear that. <laughs> and would you put that, would you put um, that on toast? I'll have it on toast. I'll slice an apple and put it on a few apple slices. Sometimes mm. late at night, I'll just spoon it into my mouth. You know, I'm oh not, yeah, I'm not fussy. definitely. Yeah, the peanut butter finger. Yeah, yeah, peanut butter finger is always a treat. But you can also try um So I invented a sandwich, which you toast a bagel and then you put like a lot of peanut butter and then you just put a little bit of marmite and it's called the special relationship sandwich. Ooh, that sounds absolutely <laughs> disgusting. No, no. Shout out to Maya Singer, who was involved in this invention as well, back in our Avenue 32 days. Oh no, this is not okay. I'm a a Marmite. No, guys. Oh, you're an anti-Marmite. No, 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 no. I'm obsessed with Marmite. In fact, fact, it's all I've been eating at the moment. It's what I I eat when I'm feeling, when I need comfort food. Marmite is my go-to. Same. Well, peanut butter. Peanut butter for me. But I like to put the two together. Oh, yeah, no, no, no. For me, I'm a purist. It's Marmite, butter and bread and that's it. Nothing else. My dad puts Marmite in coffee and in he has warm water and Marmite as a drink. Wow. Yeah. As a Frenchman, as a French person, that would be considered highly unacceptable. People at French breakfast tables actually burk at Marmite. 
if they know what it is. Otherwise, they just look at you in bewilderment. Yeah, I had Marmite toast last night and François made me sit on the other side of the table because he couldn't stand the smell. Yeah, that's what happens to me generally as well. Besides from the mom, the peanut butter, sorry, crisis, are things back to normal in France, Monica? Because lockdown has lifted now. Yes, lockdown has lifted. So we are déconfiné. So we were confiné and now we're déconfiné. So what's, be, what's déconfiné mean? Déconfiné means that we don't need, because we used to have an have to have a signed piece of paper explaining why, for what purpose we were outside of our houses. We don't have to do that anymore. You can leave your house, come and go as you please. You're suggested to wear a mask in a store or another, you know, public place. I have to admit, I don't really wear one walking down the street unless there's a lot of people around and then I put it on, but it's quite nice to breathe actual air. I don't think you even technically have to wear a mask except in certain places, but you know, people are. So you still have that slightly apocalyptic apocalyptic feel, but there's people in the streets, there's people in shops. Like I'm talking, you know, in a clothing store as much as a grocery store. That gives me hope. Le Bon Marché is open. Okay. Galerie Lafayette is open. Galerie Lafayette is open. So people are doing a lot of shopping in so far as their budgets will allow. What about parks? Um, Yeah, they haven't opened the parks and there's actually a huge uh, argument going on between Anne Hidalgo, the mayor of Paris, and um, federal government, so Macron, so the the state, uh, as to whether parks in Paris should be open because Anne Hidalgo thinks that they should. Listen, I never thought I would say this. I'm usually much more of a Macron gal, but uh, I agree with her. I think that if you don't open the parks... Everyone's just gathered, like as soon as it's nice out, and it's very nice out at the moment, everyone's gathered along the Seine and along the Canal Saint-Martin, drinking and stuff. I mean, I don't think you're supposed to drink, but I think they do. And it's much more huddled than if we were all in the Luxembourg or the Tuileries. We've had our parks this whole time. No, I know you have. And I actually think, well, I don't know. What do you what do you think about that? I don't think that the UK is an example. I think that the way everything has been managed here is being pretty bad. And although I actually am very thankful for the fact that our parks were still open because obviously we have needed to be able to get outdoors. Um, and I thought it was quite funny the other day because it's bank holiday and I went into the park for a little run. And I saw that they had drawn on the grass these huge giant circles that are all okay. separated, like the two meters. So you're allowed to sit each group and it's supposed to be household only. But obviously that's not the case. You know, everybody can see yeah. that households don't have like eight children um, in the UK. I don't think that's the no, <laughs> um, but you're allowed to sit within that circle as long as you don't like interact with the other circles kind of thing. So it's like trying to keep people at a reasonable distance, which I think is quite smart. If you are going to allow people to use the parks, I think as much direction as possible is is intelligent. Yeah, but do people actually adhere to the circles? When I went in, yes, people were sitting. But it, but again, they're sitting in the circles, but they've clearly disrespected the rule, which is households only together because right. it was it was bigger groups right so we're allowed to mix with people from other households now not over 10 people but you, I'm, you're allowed to see friends mm. i have to say sorry i'm cutting you off but i just have to say i feel like actually france has done it a lot better because it's better to more strict and italy because it's better to just be more strict about it and then get it over with and then come out of confinement I mean, maybe I'm speaking too soon. No, I, I feel the same way. I The last set of rules, which were basically um, summed up by the key phrase, stay alert, made zero sense. There used to be a bear in Canada on television who said, stay alert, stay safe. <laughs> yeah, but what does stay alert mean? Nothing. You can't see the virus. It means that Boris is a friendly bear. It means he's an idiot. That's what it means. I just think... Ooh, I just la, think la, 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 <laughs> I just think clear rules are better than vague rules. And in in yeah. these circumstances, obviously, everything is... I think I was listening to Pandora on the Hilo saying about this, stay alert and use common sense doesn't make sense to say that because all these sets of rules are totally normal. We've never had to apply them to ourselves. Why would it make sense to operate in this new way? It doesn't make sense. We need more direction and clear instructions because we don't yeah. really understand what is required of us to make sure that this virus is 
is at bay. So yeah, I think for me, for me, um, I just wish things were a little bit more um, clear. Yeah, maybe in the fashion world as well, things will start to clarify. But by the way, so that makes me think that I just want to tell our listeners what's going to go on in this show because we've been messing around with the format a little bit recently. So we're going to do a comp. We've got an interview for you, a great guest later on, our dear friend, Dan Thali, uh, who is the editor of a magazine curated by. But before we're going to do a bit more of the chatting between each other, catching up because we're so separated. We need to catch up and... <laughs> We like to assume that you want to listen to it. No, we've got some topics we want to discuss around the industry and the changes that have happened since our last uh, record on May 6th. So that's the order of the day. Is that, have I missed anything, Ken? No, no, that's all good. I'm, I was going to suggest something for my fellow fashion no filterites to listen to if they hadn't already because I've yeah. been listening to Louis Theroux's Grounded and it's so good it's so good it's oh, so good I'm so happy you've been listening as well it's really he's just so good isn't he how many episodes has he done so far three he's done four four oh I'm so excited to catch up yeah I thought the one with um uh what's her name why can I not remember her name there was boy George there was boy George there was um, Helena Bonham Carter, who apparently <gasps> you went to school with. No. There's yeah. one with Helena Bonham Carter? Yeah, it's the third one. And it was a very interesting listen because he does that thing at the beginning where he bangs on a little bit about her ex-husband and he make, he realises that Tim he's doing Burton. it. Yeah, he realises that he's doing it, catches himself kind of apologizes for it but it's almost too late he's made the whole introduction about tim and obviously he's not interviewing tim he's isn't tim now married to somebody else yeah yeah they're they're divorced and they're there he asks about how it is between them but he just basically references him he just talks about him a little bit too much i just found it really interesting to watch or to listen to sorry a very very famous and very very talented interviewer kind of She's so powerful and she's so articulate and mm, mm. she's also very, very good tempered. But you can almost sense that it's not as much she, she minds, but she notices that it's happening. Yeah. And he she, realizes. She doesn't suffer fools. No. So. And he knows that he, he clearly realized that he's done it. And I just thought it was a very interesting piece of tension because that's something if you were just editing something out, he could have edited it out. It, or yeah. he could have, if it was a, a, a documentary or if it was a written piece that would have been written differently. But I just thought it was really interesting to get that very, that awkward moment at the beginning of the conversation where I don't know, his his mind just went to Tim, so he started asking a few questions about that before realising that probably he talked about that a little bit too much because they're not together anymore. You can't really start an interview with someone about their ex-husband. It's a bit weird. I mean, I would prefer people don't start an interview with me about my current husband. It, exactly, that's my point. <laughs> Any, it, it should be about her, and it wasn't. No, and I just to him. No, I loved, I loved the episode. She's honestly so interesting to listen to and talk yeah, about. Yeah, I love her. She's one of my favorite actresses. Yeah, she's fantastic. I see the latest one. Sorry, uh, the, just I've just seen, I've just been going on the Louis Theroux podcast to see, because I've missed some of it. Rose McGowan is the next one, which is a pretty interesting one because she was one of the big Harvey Weinstein victim whistleblowers and she's been a major activist in that trial you get to know her really well in uh, the Ronan Farrow book Catch and Kill yeah so that would be my only recommendation of the week because all I've been doing Monica <laughs> I've given up on I've given up on culture I'm just doing a puzzle so Puzzles. this is this is who I am right now I'm do by puzzle listening to Louis Theroux and I can't really that's all I can think about Listen, I understand. And you know what? I did so much of that kind of thing. I mean, not puzzles. I'm quite impressed that I don't think I've done a puzzle since I was 10. And I'm very impressed that you guys are. Because that's really good for your brain, your logical brain, puzzles. But I have to be honest with you, um, since I've been deconfined, I've been um, doing a lot of um, cocktail hour with friends. And that's nice. Yeah, no, it's just me and my puzzle over here. Just me and my puzzle. <laughs> But you know what the good thing is? The good thing is I've my screen time has gone down massively 
And I have become weirdly obsessed with this puzzle. I thought it's a really difficult one. My mum sent me, it's called an impossible puzzle. She found it on Amazon, I think. That is the kind of name that would make me absolutely not want to do the puzzle. But it's a peace protest and all the little men have the same face. So it's really, really, really difficult. But I'm I'm really enjoying it. So there you go. That's all I have to say. If anybody wants an activity to do next week, I can recommend doing a puzzle while listening to Louis Theroux. There would be great to get some sort of like mass puzzle, like where you sort of stream all of these people in via house party and you can get people to do puzzles with you. Like a sort of nerd cult. <laughs> An idea for the future. Is there anything you want to recommend? Well, yeah, so exactly. So Cocktail I, um, hour. <laughs> I recommend a new drink. Wait, I'm not joking. I'm actually going to recommend a drink. My friend Alexandra Van Hoot, shout out, friend of the pod. Her mom, Charlotte, shout out, obsessed with you, who is very English, introduced us to the Hugo, which is per, uh, elderflower. People are probably going to be like, of course, the, of course, this is the best cocktail ever. I love a bit of Prosecco, but I feel it can get a bit like, acid after a second glass so i prefer this so you put elderflower cordial which obviously all english people know about and not that many other people in other countries fill the glass up, the rest of the glass up with prosecco so you're only putting like a thumb of elderflower cordial in a normal tumbler and then you fill it up with prosecco and then you get fresh mint leaves and you tear them up and you put tons of them and it is the most refreshing spring summer cocktail i can possibly recommend but while drinking my Hugos, I have actually, just to keep my brain relatively functioning, um, been dipping into, surprise, surprise, my favorite magazine, The New Yorker. And I want to just say, you know, the covers during COVID have been so brilliant. Mm. They've really touched my very soul. I got to say, there was one called After the Shift on April 13th. Um, which showed a healthcare worker hunched over a subway platform who was like physically and emotionally exhausted. And I just felt that it was really true to the ugh, emotion of these people who have spent all day saving lives and then, you know, have to get on a crowded subway car to go back. And he's sort of looking into the distance with his coffee. And it's just, it really shook me. Oh, wait, hang on. I've got to talk about the March 30 cover as well. Because yeah, yeah, I was going to say. And yeah, and it was the healthcare worker Skyping with her family um, as the dad put the kids to bed with mayhem swirling around her in the hospital. And again, he just the idea of someone separating themselves from their own children to go and sacrifice potentially their own health. And, you know, as we see in the New York Times cover, this weekend, which was broadly shared on social media. So probably a lot of people have seen it, but if you haven't, it was 1,000 uh, names of COVID victims in the United States. 100,000. Oh, on the cover, there were 100,000. Yeah. No, 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 no. Yeah. There are 100,000 victims and there were 1,000. Oh, 1, you're right, you're right, 1,000 were represented because they couldn't put the whole 100,000. Yeah. But it was representing the 100,000 victims that have now passed. Oh, but the the best thing about it is that um, of those 1,000 1, names, each had a heartbreaking nod to what made them human and not just a statistic. Yeah. So I don't know if you saw, but they had I things did. like Florenzo Almazo Moran, 65, New York City, one man army. Jennifer Robin Arnold, 67, New York City, Broadway costume dresser. I don't know. It's just so sweet. They, mm. For every name, they, they added something that made them. I loved it. I that it made them them. Done. Yeah, it was They've so good. They really got it all figured out over there, haven't It was so interesting, though. I don't know if you thought about this, but it, it really stood out for me, the fact that they didn't use any images and that they just put all those names on there. And it got me, I geeked out for a little mm. bit and wanted to remind myself um, when was the last time that, that an image hadn't been used on the cover to, to show something so important. And I, I did a little bit of digging and turns out that the New York Times published its first issue September 18th, 1851. But the first photos 
didn't appear on the cover until the early uh, 900s. So that's 60 years later. And I found this really powerful visual timeline that was created by this guy called Josh Beagley, which really captures the newspaper's change. So like you see for the first, I don't know, 30 seconds, the time lapse, decades of text only. So you see all these front pages where there's only text and then slowly you see appearing images, which at first they were just illustrated maps and wood engravings and that kind of thing. Then slowly black and white photography comes in. And then as photography comes in slowly but surely, it just starts taking up half and all of the page. Well, maybe all this is heralding the return of the written word. Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah, true. But also some of the more powerful covers that I've been seeing, and we have seen a lot of different kind of creativity, lo-fi creativity, or just, yeah, different to just using a celebrity with great hair, makeup, and a lot of airbrushing on a cover, Mm. using different kind of images. We've seen archival images. We saw the Vogue Italia that started the trend when it ran the... April 2020 issue, which was, you know, the plain white cover, no photo, no headlines, just the title on a pure white page as a Mm -hmm. tribute to the victims of COVID-19. I thought that was beautiful. And then American Vogue used the single red rose on its June cover under the headline, Our Common Thread. You had Grazia that had designers design the floral covers. I just think it's really interesting to see that suddenly, finally, we're seeing a different kind of cover than the celebrity. Absolutely. I I think we're exactly, we're forcing editors to really use their creativity, which they do have in them instead of just slapping a celeb on the cover. Actually in France as well, French L did a great cover with um, illustrations of French doctors and nurses. I I just, I've been really impressed with the way that the fashion press, well, the press has taken this on. So it's kind of uplifting. Yeah, and it's just, I mean, obviously, like using illustrations to highlight some of the situations in hospitals is a way to show the grim reality of working in an environment that privacy laws make hard to capture on photo. And Precisely. same for the fashion industry. If you can't produce a shoot because you have to stay at home, then there are obviously other ways of being creative. I'm just hopeful and curious to see whether this new wave of creativity carries into the new normal and whether we... I I just have really enjoyed having other things to to look forward to on my newsstand than just... And I I say this without being scathing and derogatory, but, you know, yet another 20-year-old celebrity or singer, you know, like to sell a Vogue magazine. It just gets a bit repetitive. Completely agree with you. I completely, completely agree with you. And I think that we used to, before there was this obvious formula, I think that our Mm -hmm. industry used to really rely on, on its own creativity and originality in a completely different way and it's time to break that formula and not least because the because obviously we know that the press has been suffering a lot because of the rise of the internet and social media and the way that we consume media and perhaps that formula wasn't working so much anymore because perhaps our celebrity content and model content we're getting it all on social media anyway so actually finding really different kinds of creative ways to give people a reason to buy a cover to keep for their home and have a physical object that's not just a picture of a celebrity, which maybe we don't want anymore in our home. I think it's really encouraging and I really I really hope this continues. Well, here, here, and that leads really nicely onto our guest for today. The wonderful, brilliant, gorgeous, very well-dressed <laughs> editor-in-chief of a magazine curated by Dan Foley. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, Dan. How are you both? Hello. Hi, we're, we're okay. I'm okay. Nice to hear your voice. Likewise. How are you? I'm very well. Planning my return to Paris. Ah, your great return. Yes, I think I'll be back on Saturday. How long have you been away? Since March 16th, so a solid 10 weeks. Yeah. How has it been? I've been very, very lucky where I am here in, um, in Pilat-sur-Mer. So um, I can't complain. I've had the ocean. Now the beach is open again. So yeah, it's it's been uh, a lot of work to put a magazine out during this period. But uh, right. I have to say that in a nice environment connected to nature has been really very nourishing. So what was your daily activity in your former life then? Yeah, introduce yourself a bit if you don't mind. So my name's Dan Thorley and I am the editor-in-chief of a magazine curated by and I'm a fashion and arts journalist based in Paris. I'm Australian. I, I was born in Sydney and moved over to Europe in 2009. And I've been working on this magazine since 2009 as its digital editor. And in 2010, I became the editor-in-chief. It's a magazine that was started in Antwerp in 2001 with the mission of creating Belgium's first uh, niche fashion title. And uh, it quickly became something quite different as the concept is to invite one fashion designer to curate each issue of the magazine. It's a carte blanche to them to express their interests, their their loves, their obsessions, and all about their universe in around 200 pages. And it is something that has really done a, uh, a world tour in nearly 20 years with designers from France and Italy, from Japan, from England, and from uh, the United States, and, and really uh, covering a very, very broad aesthetic scope as well. So it started with designers like Marta Margiela and... Heidi Ackerman and uh, Olivia Teskens, people that were really based in that late 90s Belgian aesthetic. Uh, and then moving forward, we've, we've worked with uh, many, many different types of designers like Alessandra Michele at Gucci. We've uh, worked with Paolo Piccioli at Valentino. And uh, our most recent issue, which is just about to hit newsstands in the coming days and was announced last week, is with Luke and Lucy Mayer, who are the uh, co-curative directors of Jill Sander in Milan. I'm such a fan of theirs. I'm really excited to read this. But I'm I'm wondering, Dan, how yeah, technically, how? how do you put together a print magazine while in confinement? How did you make that work? We're very impressed. So we have, I mean, it's always a, a, a long process. And this is an issue that we've been working on for many months. So certain parts of it were very luckily finished just before legal confinement. And other parts of it were still in the process as we uh, as we were shut down and locked down here in in France so um i was very lucky to have programmed this issue more or less to come out around this uh, around this time but it was slightly delayed but um what we'd done was uh, actually done most of the physical productions in the months of january to march already so what was the biggest challenge for us was um that we usually design the magazine together with our team in Cologne uh, as we work with a wonderful art direction office called Mireille and Mireille in, uh, in Cologne. And so usually we would have gone there with Luke and Lucy Mayer and whichever designer we were working with at the time for a couple of days. And we sit in the office with them and we design all the pages and we go through all of the process of, of the structure and putting everything together in person. And this time we were unable to do that as actually there was a case of COVID-19 in the, in the office in Cologne Eesh. in the uh, earlier part of, uh, of quarantine. So it was really off the table before travel was actually, um, was actually restricted. So um, we were forced to do everything uh, a distance and, uh, and work from home as, uh, as were 
everybody else. But what we were lucky was that we'd had most of our photo shoots finished. So um, one of the challenges was that we had photographers rushing to their labs all over the all over the place to get their prints developed in time. And we did shoots in um, many different cities, uh, New York, Barcelona, Paris, Iceland. We, we really were all over the place. Some photographers traveled, others were in their in their hometown or in their own country where they could drive and, and do something locally, which was nice. It wasn't all big productions uh, anyway, but it was many small things uh, happening at once. And um, and so we did have the risk of, of not getting some of our images in time. Mm. And then everything was luckily through except for one or two things that we just really had to leave by the wayside. And we set to work designing the magazine from afar, which was very challenging because we had uh, people in different time zones. One of my colleagues, Blake, was in Vancouver with his family, so he wasn't able to come over for the design period. So we had people working from Vancouver to France to Cologne and Milan all in lockdown. So it was quite a juggling act. But our last real stroke of luck in the middle of all that was that, in fact, we were for the first time printing with an Italian printer because they work with a special technique where the side of the magazine is actually invisibly bound. So it's bound with stitches, which are then all these small booklets stitched together and then glued on the side. So you have this invisible spine with the stitches showing through. And they were actually considered an essential service in Italy, even though they were in northern Italy, of oh, course, an area that was very, very heavily affected by the virus. And um, due to their uh, status as an essential services provider, we were able to print in April. So uh, so that was uh, really interesting. And and as I said, a very serendipitous experience. But um, but putting the print magazine together in that time, of course, like putting any media together in that period, it was something that had to be very done, done very sensitively. Yeah. It had to be done with a lot of thought to the world that we were living in at that particular time, as well as um, the uh, the world that we're going into. And um, we were also uh, very prescient with that because Lucy and Luke's uh, theme for the issue that was decided last July was the idea of human nature and mother nature and the interactions mm. between those things. Wow. That had been decided way before because I feel it's so apt. Yes. I mean, I mean, wow. yes. So we found ourselves with this theme that we'd already been working on for months. It was already very much connected to current events in a way. You know, yeah. we were looking at um, endangered environments. We were looking at different kinds of architecture that was uh, linked to people's domestic lives, the process of them creating artwork. We were looking at also different elements of, of, of race. We were looking into all sorts of things that sort of pivoted around the way we deal with nature and environments. Mm. It was uh, something that I, of course, had to think about when writing my editor's letter, which is one of the last things that goes into the magazine. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're a very timeless publication. We're not the kind of magazine like uh, you were discussing earlier, the, whether it's a Vogue or a New York Times, it has to be on the, on the point of, of uh, actuality of, of the news and really making strong statements uh, thereabouts. But what we did have and want to do here was still uh, really acknowledge the fact that we were coming out in this time and in this year, uh, one that we will truly never forget in our, in our lifetimes. And um, in order to do that, I, uh, and, and, and Lucy and Luke as well, they, they also write a letter in the magazine and we, we both found our different ways of, of acknowledging the situation uh, in quite a subtle way. And we also had uh, two brilliant Italian curators who were already contributing a beautiful photo portfolio to the magazine and they were able to add a, uh, a new body of work by an Italian photographer in Paris, Jasco Bertoli, who, uh, who photographed uh, pedestrians on the street from his Paris apartment uh, window wow. and uh, it's this great bird's eye view of life uh, in central Paris during lockdown so you see um, people shopping with masks on navigating on scooters just that kind of general emptiness of the streets which he mixed with uh, with many other kinds of photography in that small portfolio so we do have a little touch of uh, mm, of now let's call it COVID content new normal um, without being yeah but without being uh too uh, explicit in that. Because uh, I was going to ask you that because obviously it's different for you because you, as you explained, uh, producing a magazine that A, is meant to be timeless and people can come and refer back to um, from the moment that I guess they're interested in the, the topic or the designer, whatever it is. But we've seen a lot of 
kind of, I want to call it like new wave creativity, like very lo-fi or certainly a different way of putting covers together, articles together, images together. You've just explained that you didn't have to rely on that because you were actually lucky um, in that you already had some of your content put together. But we've noticed quite a lot of magazines changing up their content. Do you think that's going to stick around? It's a very interesting point, Kemi. And, and to your point about us, in a way, already existing within those parameters. I mean, to go back to this particular issue, we, um, you I mean, you could almost look at it and say, oh, they also did, I mean, if you didn't know the magazine, you could say, oh, they also did a cover that was linked to yeah. to yeah. Uh, this new normal because our current cover is, uh, is actually made uh, with a Japanese uh, washi paper or the rice paper that's been uh, impregnated with uh, wildflowers and it was made by a third generation paper artisan in, in Japan and Luke and Lucy had collected this paper on one of their trips there in the last couple of years and they, they loved the paper so much and had collected various uh, pieces of it with seaweed and shells and flowers inside it and their idea was to use this super beautiful paper for the cover of the magazine. And so um, we went through various stages of research and investigation and testing in the last few months to work out whether that was possible. You know, of course, printing a magazine is printing in volume and we have a lot of quantity and this paper is something that's very, very fragile. So um, with our fantastic print company, we were able to devise a way of 3D scanning this beautiful paper, which is a relatively new technique that really shows all of the the indents and the and the textures of a um, of a surface, and um, so we three D scanned this paper and printed it on a uh, an open uh, offset uh, recycled stock. So in fact, when you see it and it's been embossed with the A shape on top, it really really truly does look like this kind of paper. And there's no model on the cover, you know. There's no headlines. Yep. There's none of those things mm -hmm. that, um, you know, would often attract somebody to buy a magazine in a kiosk, mm -hmm. um, which of course is often the point of, uh, of many magazines is to be seen and to be noticed, uh, above, let's say the, uh, the noise of all the others. So yeah, you could say ours kind of looks like that now, but, um, back to your point, I think that this has been a really positive thing because it does show people that there are other ways of, of communicating and other ways of being elegant, other ways of being seen. I mean, I think that uh, to uh, your point earlier, of course, the American Vogue cover with the beautiful uh, rose yeah. from Irving Penn was uh, was one of those mm. uh, elements, whether or not it was had some uh, political message behind it as well. And uh, the white cover by Italian Vogue was also, of course, a very important yeah. one there. Um, I think a, a shout out to Vanity Fair Italy as well, who have do, been doing an amazing job too. They did a great cover with uh, Francesco Vizzoli, reinterpreting a Lucio Fontana artwork with the Italian flag, which I thought was was great. And they've just done a Paolo Sorrentino cover with the Spanish Steps in Rome, the sort of surrealist flamingo head wearing a Valentino dress in the front, which I thought was great too. So I think there's really interesting ways that people can do existing images they can you know work with great art directors to find more interesting ways of uh, piecing together new things and and showing as well i mean in style the us also put um put a nurse on the cover yeah i love that um, so i mean i think there are people are taking it in different ways and and uh i think it can last there are certain parts of it that i don't like and parts of it that i do mm. but it certainly felt very refreshing i feel like that that old school model of to shoot celebrity slap a title on it sell magazine just feels a little bit just like it's just a little bit done now yeah it feels passe and i think it's reminded us of the fact that we can do things differently and be successful and on that note i actually wanted to shift a little bit because dan i remember the first day of paris fashion week i ran into at a show like probably i think it was the first show i went to and it was really weird because you know, we'd all just obviously been in Milan and some people were behaving like everything was kind of normal. And I actually want to say mea culpa there a little bit. I was definitely more in that mind frame. And you were kind of like, are you not worried about all of us being here? Thousands of people in this squished into this room. I mean, look what's going on in Milan. And as all of this has rolled out, I think that on this podcast and generally our industry has really been questioning the way that we do things. I mean, first of all, I don't know about you, but 
the fact that our entire industry went from Milan to Paris and so did COVID is potentially not such a coincidence. But also, Dan, I just wanted to get you to comment on, you know, the announcements that have been made by Saint Laurent and now yesterday Gucci about going off schedule. What do you think about all this? And is is there a real potential for things to change in terms of the fashion week schedule? And it's funny that you go back to that period because it was such an uncertain time for us all. And I do remember coming back from Milan and thinking that there were a mix of of different responses and I was somewhere in between for sure. Yeah. I mean, I remember one of the first people to go underground and uh, and to confine was Loic Prigion. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and Loic uh, sent a local team to, to cover the Paris shows and he had his Milan team quarantined very early on. And, and I remember thinking, wow, that's a, a drastic measure. Yeah, he came on right a- right after he came on the pod and was explaining it to us. But actually, yeah, it seems like he did the right thing, doesn't it? He did. And I, I mean, I have various uh, ideas about who may have brought uh, the virus from Milan to Paris. And oddly enough, the actual editorial level of the fashion industry have been very has been very mildly affected. I mean, there has been a lovely Sophia Neoffi too in in, uh, London who had a very terrible case, unfortunately, and a couple of other um, people who I've heard of. But in general, it's not something that's gone from front row to front row and Mm. affected many, many editors, buyers, uh, and other key members of the industry. I do think that there was probably a second wave of people that had come through from uh, Milan to Paris, working in showrooms and and working in the industry in general, who may have brought it through to to Paris as well. But I'm sure that there are many other factors involved other than fashion too. Mm, yeah, sure. But it was definitely a a, a hit or miss, a kind of a, a difficult spot. time for all of us to to think about um, that initial two week quarantine. But then, of course, you know, many many other reasons to keep uh, quarantining and resetting that two weeks happened uh, later on. So. Um, so that's uh, that's its own story, but um, yeah. back to the back to the calendar, and um, of course, Alessandro's letters that he wrote during confinement were published on Gucci's Instagram over the weekend, and they are a very poetic uh, recount of his reflections on how to move forward, and I think they are relatively abstract still in certain ways, but much less abstract than what Saint Laurent did, which was to put out a big blanket statement that didn't give you anything concrete. And in my opinion, was also a um, bit of a publicity stunt to be first, um, to be the first house to say something, to to make a statement. All in all, of course, still a positive thing. And it's interesting to see that both from caring uh, companies and that LVMH has remained relatively tight-lipped until now. So interesting to see what the other big players are going to come through within the next couple of weeks. I, look, I think that uh, there's a lot of things that we can be sure of, and they they include that the uh, the cruise schedule is kaput. And Yay! certainly <laughs> I don't think that's to say that there won't still be destination shows happening and shows for local markets. Um the, uh, the idea of the re-show, I think, is something that's also been a phenomenon in the last couple of years, particularly in Asia, with certain houses replaying a show blow by blow with uh, with local models and some international models to a local audience, whether it's uh, for Pret-a-Porter when it's hitting the stores or whether it's uh, for couture clients in emerging markets. And I think we've seen that happening quite a lot. But it's not so publicised on the uh, social media of... Um, of the brands, but it is publicized, but it's not made, uh, it's not made such a big thing of, and it's been, it's been happening in men's and women's collections by houses like Dior and Chanel. So, and Valentino as well for that matter. So I think that it'll be interesting to see how those continue to happen uh, because they are also a different way of, um, of, uh, of showing a collection in local markets. Of course, they're not going to be happening in such grand proportions anymore, Mm. but, uh, but the idea of a collection being, given it a certain space in local in local markets could be interesting moving forward. Mm. And uh, as for the calendar itself, I mean, there is, are still going to be key moments in the year that one will still consider as a fashion week, I believe. But I do think that the idea of, uh, of having so many collections may, may perhaps be a be reduced and the idea of publicizing them as separate collections mm. will also be reduced. I mean, I think that's something that's, that's been the case for many years for certain brands is that they have very large collections and only parts of them are on the runway. Other parts of them are actually sold months before and then, you know, 
Dries van Noten yeah. is a good example of, of someone who shows who actually sells the collection before the runway show happens, gauges the buyer's um, interest in, in certain pieces and certain ideas, and then puts the runway show together afterwards. And then there are certain parts of that collection that will drop earlier in the season and later in the season, but it's still considered one show. Whereas, you know, the idea of other smaller brands, you know, busting their gut to put four, show, four collections out a year when it's just more about being smart about communicating a certain number of clothes and a certain number of ideas over a certain amount of time. So I think that, you know, Gucci's saying that we're going to do two collections a year and that we're going to choose the moment and it's it's going to be like a piece of music instead of, a you know, a blockbuster, mm. you know, fashion show. Um, you know, he used that as his metaphor. So I think it'll be interesting. It, it may also point towards the idea of Gucci uh, embracing the drop culture of streetwear too, mm. you know. Um, mm. I think it's a brand that really lends itself to that Yes. Yeah, and 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 to and to continue on your mention of uh, Dries, he was part of the um, the the retailers and 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 yeah, the open letter, the names that signed um, this desire to change the seasonal shopping calendar and and actually selling things according to season. So yeah, instead of selling bathing suits in November and and co- coats in May, the goal is to sell clothes in the time of year when they're worn, which and. Wow, crazy idea. Exactly. Can I just say that this is the number one question that non-fashion or as Cammy and I sometimes call it fashion muggles, but we say that with a lot of respect, (laughs) ask me is, and it's, I guess to us it seems obvious, but it's not really that obvious. Why don't they just put out the clothes when we need them? I totally get that question. Like, it, it makes a lot of sense. It That question even comes more often than why do the models look anorexic? Even more often. So there is something to be said for it because let's face it, not all clients work in fashion and are having to review and put out press about it. That's not really what concerns them, is it? I, I, I like the open letter. But what do you think, Dan? Absolutely. I mean, I think that it was an interesting time uh, a week or two ago when uh, Dries spearheaded that first initiative and then the business of fashion picked it up and Mm. um, published a a think tank that they'd been working on privately prior to that time as well, which Dries was not a part of, called Rewiring Fashion. And both of those things emerged at a similar time. They don't have the exact same message, but they have similar messages and both are definitely catering to the sizes of brands that are such as Dries and, and Tom Brown, Philip Lim, all these designers who have signed it. I mean, there's hundreds now yeah. and there's many, many retailers as well who have signed it. And it's it's really also proof that there shouldn't be just one fashion calendar that should work for everybody because there are so many different factors at play and there are different size brands and there are different markets that are requiring different things, just as the, uh, the luxury conglomerates have different needs as well to uh, nourish their uh, store networks with product too. Mm. So I think that um, what, we're, what we're seeing now is that there is no right answer just yet. And more than ever, people are going to have to start dancing to the beat of their own drum. Mm. And uh, if there can be certain guidelines for that in place, fantastic. And if there can be new buying seasons and new periods and new ways of showing people that this can still exist without the exact same uh, prior rules in place, it's fantastic. But I thought it was interesting. I was on a, um, I was on a uh, industry Zoom call with the uh, many players in the Australian fashion industry, uh, a new initiative there called uh, Hashtag We Wear Australian, which is a bit like a common thread in the States, um, pushing uh, pushing for local uh, local craft and, uh, and local making. One of the buyers there said to me that, you know, she's often profited from the fact that, you know, the clothes were coming at the wrong time because it works for Australia. So right. that's something interesting to note too. And then further to that, uh, this was Eva Galambos from Parlor X. She also said the fact that collections have become an enormous, have gone, have come a long way to become more transseasonal. And I think that's something that we all have to remember too, moving forward is to, is to keep pushing that message of, of the transseasonality of things and, and the fact that something shouldn't just belong to one, one time of year. And also that we just get smarter with the kind of fabrics that we're using and the way we're putting collections together to to make garments that are functional. Totally. I mean, let's look at fashion in a more international way. And it's not just Europe based anymore. And you as an Australian see, you know, flip seasons. I, as a Canadian, have grown up with it not actually being summer until June. Like, it's just not warm. I never saw a winter coat until I was an adult. Like, <laughs> oh, that's no so funny. No one owns a long coat. 
I never took off a winter coat until I moved to Europe. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Ugh, I'm just boring and European, guys. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> she, you're, well, you're French, so that's what everything was was being designed for back in the day. But things are changing. Now, speaking of change, we wanted to ask you about um, about men's versus women's. And now, obviously, the men's work. Uh, week has been cancelled that was coming right up. What do you think about the idea of designers showing their men's and women's collections? I mean, and obviously this has been taken on board by a lot of designers anyway, but do you think that we should continue to have a men's week and a women's ready-to-wear week, or should they all be uh, mushed in together? Does that show a collection in a more interesting way? I was asked this question the other day, and I'm going to um, return to the same answer that I gave then because I I still believe in it. And it also involves Dries again, who was one of the people who suggested he still likes to show his men's collections separately because he doesn't want them to be thought of as a footnote to the women's collection and to give it its own platform. And then, um, you know, that was also, there's also been a, 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 an about turn there in, uh, in other houses too. And and Gucci was one of them as well, who um, decided to re show a men's collection alone this year. Um, I actually wrote a piece for uh, for uh, Vogue Global, the the, the Vogue comment. It's up on Vogue.co.uk and a few other Vogues uh, in February about the the gendered fashion show, and yeah. um, and so I did definitely uh, look into this topic quite extensively. And I have to say that it's an interesting one because you have this phenomenon of menswear that has just exploded in the last fifteen to twenty years, and the idea of it as a real market, which which, which it wasn't before. I mean, menswear was so, so ultra traditional and bogged down in, um, in old ideas of, uh, of what men's luxury was. And it's just exploded in a wonderful way as has non-gendered dressing, which is another Mm. idea that has come out of, uh, out of these talks at the moment with the idea of, um, even, you know, the Pranton department store right now is showing, um, mixed clothes and sizes on their web, on their new website. It's not a new thing at all. Selfridges has done projects like that as well, all to varying, uh, levels of success. But, um, I think that uh, it really is a case by case by case situation, and you, and you can't just say that uh, women's and men's fashion week, in whatever way that will be uh, in the future, can can be together because, unfortunately, the saturation of brands in the world is enormous, yeah. and the, the saturation of women's wear is enormous, and men's wear, and they all cater to such different kinds of customers. I mean. In menswear, you have the fantastic trade fair Pitti Imagine in Florence that happens in June and, and January normally, and that shows you know everything from from all the denim brands to Italian suiting, and and you really see this this huge huge breadth of the kind of things that um that men wear and the kind of different boutiques, the different price levels. I mean, it's a huge huge industry now, and likewise. A women's fashion week in Paris or in New York or in London, etc., is really full of different kinds of brands. Of course, there's an element of glamour and and uh, excitement and color that comes from a, a women's fashion week because it's it's just in general the way that women have been allowed to dress and have have dressed in in through, throughout history has been more flamboyant than men, more theatrical. Mm. There's been so much more embellishment and and uh, silhouettes. So. There's this kind of idea that men's clothes uh, are much more linked to masculinity and much more linked to practicality and, you know, so that things are much more um, sober. And, and of course, parts of that have changed, but there's always going to be that imbalance of, of what one kind of fashion means and what the other kind of fashion means. If the internet is going to be our, our um, frontier of, of those things uh, happening, let's say, at the same time, then maybe it's okay. But if there's going to be singular platforms, and even if that's a fashion federation, or if that's a, if that's Instagram, I mean, there's only so much space for so many things at the same time, whether or not it's a physical space. And I do think that spreading things out uh, is still a good thing. And I do think that menswear has, has a big voice now. And uh, in a way, what's interesting is that the, let's say part of that new normal will actually allow for a little bit more of a middle ground for the way women might want to dress a bit more like men. I mean, that was already happening um, as well a lot too. And I think that, you know, the the time that we've all spent recently focusing on comfort, focusing on 
indoor activities, focusing on the time we can spend outside and how we spend it, which is more active than than previously. I think that all those things are leading to, the, to towards the fact that maybe evening wear and party dresses and things like that may subside a little bit in the um, in fashion's view of of what a woman wants to wear and how she wants to feel and, and look all the time. I mean, I can look at both of your Instagram accounts and say that you've definitely been wearing the pants in the last couple of months <laughs> no. and weeks. So, um, so true. It's, it's part of a part of trends as well, and and we might see a lot more women adopting the way that men dress um, in their day to day life, especially if we're going to be working from home for a little bit longer, which I believe is going to be the case. Well, I'm for that. Can I ask you a basic question? It's very basic, but you're a pretty snazzy dresser yourself and and so elegant always. And I was wondering if you could give us maybe your three favorite menswear brands. For me, as an editor as well, I think it's really important to support friends and to support brands that I really believe in. Yeah. And, uh, you know, working in the in the luxury sphere is, is, is amazing. And it's really interesting, of course, to to have access to seeing, um, you know, many of the more extravagant things done by big houses and, um, and that are available to customers today, but it doesn't necessarily mean that I want to wear all of them or wear all of them in my daily life. For sure. Um, so I think that there's an interesting mix, especially for me right now, as I'm revisiting my own consumption and how that will happen moving forward. And I think that there's definitely a little bit more of a, um, traceability aspect and a transparency aspect in mm. in what I'm um what I want to purchase and, and that doesn't necessarily mean buying things that are called sustainable and things that are you know necessarily entirely green but I do think people that are making an effort and are making things locally and are making things um in an honest way are going to attract my attention more than others and I'd have to make a shout out definitely to my friend Spencer Phipps with his label Phipps in Paris who um I've been wearing a lot of during lockdown and he makes um, really great menswear that is uh, inspired by his own love of the outdoors and of sports. He's a, he's a, he's a rock climber. He actually used to work for Dries and for Marc Jacobs and um, his line is, uh, is, uh, is very traceable and you can, um, you can go on his website and find out all about what you're buying and it's, it's comfortable. It's relevant. Mm. It has kind of really great storytelling about nature and about our connections to nature in the graphics. And, um, I think it's a lot of fun and it's, it's really easy and comfortable. I'm also a big fan of Marnie, uh, in Milan. And, uh, I love what the, uh, creative director Francesco Russo is doing both for men and for women. So Marnie's a big one for me. And, um, I'd have to say I've been also wearing La Mer, as, as a, as a daily go-to. Um, so I think that the kind of brands that can give you understated elegance without, uh, necessarily being too showy and being comfortable, um, are really important at the moment and just, uh, creating sort of easy, comfortable silhouettes that still look elevated. I mean, I've barely come out of my, um, Il Pelicano Birkenstocks either. So it'll be strange to start wearing real shoes again. I'm writing all this down for Mark's, uh, AW, 2020 look i'm also a big fan of what louise trotter our mutual friend is doing at lacoste yeah yes. uh, i think you know as well for, for a shout out to to her and um and the way she's uh taking a, a heritage brand at the moment in a really great new direction completely agree um i i wanted to end this dan on I mean, I saw a really interesting piece by Sarah Moa in Grazia last week where she talks about how fashion, who normally and always gets written off as frivolous, has really come into their own during this time with designers creating masks for people, PPE being sent around, people collectively getting together and thinking up new ways of both of helping their communities, etc. Do you see fashion as having a role to play in really making sure that the world post-COVID is going to adapt to this new normal? What I'm really asking is, do you still have faith in fashion and its sort of transformative power to change things? I do. I do have faith in it. I do believe there's a very, very long way to go in certain elements. What I think is interesting from this period, and maybe Sarah touched upon that, is that it's really the small players that have stepped up really well. I agree. And, of course, the ones that can, on the bigger scale, have done their part too, like LVMH working on cre- uh, producing gel in their in their fragrance factories and things like that. Um, I mean, I think many houses, Chloe has been creating um, PPE in their ateliers. And, you know, people have done different things in different ways. I think the Italian houses were also fantastic in fundraising for their local hospitals and things. And I think 
in general, what um, what this has taught us is that is fashion is a local business as much as it's a global one. And, you know, even to see, for example, a, a big, huge fashion house really uh, calling out a certain Italian hospital or a specific charity rather than necessarily a sort of blanket uh, blanket ideas of what it is to support people um, has been really interesting to watch. And then also to see Gucci as another example um, again, but really uh, focusing on awareness and education for people. So their pairing with the World Health Organization was really a very educational way of uh, of teaching people what to do at this time and um, and using their enormous network to actually educate people rather than having anything to do with clothing itself. So I do believe that this is going to be an interesting reset. And, and I've, you know, I think there are certain elements of it that have the possibility to be kind of cringeworthy. And I think we're going to see some collections that people are going to put out that, you know, will be very linked to their reflections in con- in, in confinement. And, yeah. and that can be a really great thing. And it could maybe be uh, a little obvious too. So I think we'll have to see the way people treat this subject yeah. in, a, in a graceful way. And I, I hope that it will also make them not only reflect on a thematic way, but on an actual practical way. Because I think fashion is very, very good at themes and it's and in storytelling, but it really now, really now shows that today that's not enough and that we actually have to apply these things all the way down our supply chains, all the way through to our end customers. And I'm not talking just, you know, an organic cotton T-shirt. I'm talking about the packaging. I'm talking about the coat hangers. I'm talking about all of the shipping, everything. You know, we, we just think that it's it's the end garment that's the one thing that's causing problems. But, in fact, it's it's the whole whole infrastructure that we've created that we need to sort of um, dismantle in a way. Here, here. Um, but, yeah, I think small players are doing a wonderful job, and I think that the B2C – that uh, Instagram has has really uh, propagated through these amazing uh, engagement uh, directly with with people to speak to their designers to to have a real connection with them is it's been great and I think that um the idea of crowdsourcing opinions through channels like that is also going to really um really move us forward because people are listening to their consumers and they're making those changes and they're reporting back on them and there's a sort of accountability today that that can't be ignored. Thanks so much, Dan. That was you're you're so insightful. No, it's it's been a pleasure to speak to you both. I I love uh, having a chance to reflect on all these things together, and I know that uh, your audience will be interested to hear some different points of view at this at this time when we're all getting our heads around it. So, um, no, a total pleasure, and I hope we can chat about it again soon in the well, new normal. And, well, we hope so too. And and see each other. That's my big one. I really hope we yes. can see each other soon. <laughs> well, Dan. Thank you so much. And where can people um, get their copy of A Magazine Curated By? Oh, well, um, it's uh, on sale at amagazinecuratedby.com. Um, and I mean, we already, we've already sold it with uh, wonderful idea books as well. I think they're sold out already. But um, we'll be in a lot of physical stores around the world in the next couple of weeks. Um, and hopefully they'll all be opening up again for you. But they also have some great... Uh, you know, delivery services happening with news agencies and great bookstores. So um, look out for it uh, online. We'll be tagging people too on our account who have it in different markets. But um, but it'll get out there and it's a beautiful object. That cover sounds outstanding. Yeah, it's really a collector's item. We're so happy. And, and that amazing spine means you can open the whole magazine the whole way. You know, there's no, there's no gutter. Which ah, in magazine world is very funny. exciting. And as I said, it's really nice to have something that we can be proud of as a recycled recycled object and uh and something mm-hmm. that's really uh really of now and the future of print so good to hear all of those things i think that it's going to be um a lot of cutting the fat unfortunately in the industry but we're going to get to the good stuff so that's uh, that's a good thing amen to that I guess that's all for today folks the good news is monica i am actually traveling to france later on i this can't week. believe it I can't so believe we we're will... going to see each other face to face. Well, mask to mask, face to mask. Face. Mask to mask? Mask to mask. It's like cheek to cheek. It's going to be quite an adventure. I am both really looking forward and dreading the Eurostar, but we have to come over for for personal reasons, which actually are very, um, uh, very out of our control. But I'm really, really, really looking forward to a change in scenery and can't wait to experience the world 
deconfined. So, Monica, I guess I will see you next week. And to everyone else, see you next time. Thanks for joining us. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.